Hello and welcome to Podcasting is Praxis. We're on holiday at the moment, so um, this is a pre-recorded little bonus interview episode for you. Um, so with both myself and Rob, hello, we've got Nick Bano, who is a housing and homelessness lawyer at Garden Court Chambers and is involved in a number of housing campaigns, which, you know, we, 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 we don't shut up about housing on this podcast, do we, Rob? No, we have a we have a long and proud history of talking about the joys of housing and particularly the joys of landlords. Mm, yes. So, Nick, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I'm doing well. I also don't shut up about housing. I think it's the curse of our generation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fully is. Well, you have written a, a great piece in Tribune recently about the, the second, well, not second, but the next evolution of landlords and the, the, the joys that that's going to bring to, to all of our fucking cursed generation yeah so sure so about five or six years ago uh there was some academic work done by joe bezik and others speculating about the entry of sort of big finance capital into into the housing market in the uk because traditionally it's not really played a role and unlike most of sort of continental europe and, and the us where housing is the preserve of like large corporate landlords here um, since the right to buy and since the deregulation of the private sector in the 80s and 90s, it's been sort of almost exclusively owned by very small time petty bourgeois landlords. Um, there's been sort of ultra high end housing, which has been a great investment for foreign capital and domestic capital. But really, most houses that people live in are owned by small timers. That, it seems, is starting to change. And we saw news a couple of weeks ago that Lloyd's uh, Bank is, is set to, is aiming at owning 1% of all rented housing in the UK um, over the next few years um, and others, it seems, are following in its tracks. Yeah, and this is um, sort of for our listeners, just to put it in a slightly bigger context. Uh, this is also, you have to see this in this also in the sense of bigger global megatrends that we've talked about a lot, that Trash Future talks about even more. Um, essentially, in a world where the interest rates are zero or negative, and there's tons of money sloshing around the world, um, also because of quantitative easing. Essentially, what's happening is that capital needs returns. Pension funds need returns to pay out pensioners. Wealthy people need returns to buy more private islands, what have you. Um, and what's essentially happening is that because there is zero or negative interest, cheap money needs to look for returns. And that's essentially part of the reason why the stock market is so insane, why we get all the money in companies like Tesla and Elon Musk. It's just money looking for returns. And sort of a new-ish addition to, to this is what Nick's talking about, is packaging large blocks of rental housing and uh, then instead of selling them off at some point, essentially creating a fund that will forever take money out like the money you pay your rent will go into a big investment fund and that will give returns to people who have shares in that investment fund that's sort of the model that's being uh proposed at the moment yeah. it comes from u.s uh, u.s housing nick as you said uh, mainly through the blackstone group and i think maybe we want to spend a moment talking about their model or no sure that so, so they they're the sort of um the bet noir of the u.s housing market they bought uh, well, their sort of their model is is buy when there's blood on the streets, and, and after the after the mortgage crisis in 2000, 2007, 2008, they bought up loads of basically um, repossessed homes um, in in parts of the US that were going through a bad time, but would at some point go through a good time. 
and they put a bit of money into doing them up so that when when uh, sort of the economy stabilized over the next few years um all of a sudden these 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 houses that were worth very little uh, were worth a great deal more they have been criticized by the un for their very um, aggressive uh, evictions uh, campaigns and really their kind of turbocharged um sort of guided project of gentrification across the US, uh, as opposed to these sort of little pockets of gentrification that we're used to seeing here and there. I mean, that really is their business model over there. And all this essentially sort of relies the profit model of things like Backstone and presumably Lloyd's when they get in on this is uh, what's known as a rent gap. What's a rent gap? So a rent gap is, is where um, land attracts a certain amount of rental value, but could potentially attract more. Um, there's what's called a rent gap and you need to take some action, for example, by evicting your tenants or knocking down the building or rebuilding it to, to close that rent gap to realise the higher yield um, that you could get. Uh, and the, the, the sort of interesting comparison between between the UK and elsewhere is that where there are rent stabilisation laws, where there are um, sort of building regulations and things like that, it can be quite difficult to close a rent gap. Uh, and in the case of Blackstone, we see that it took it took quite some time for those rent gaps to close as as the economy vaguely recovered and as rents went up. In England and Wales, and a bit less in Scotland, it's incredibly easy to close a rent gap because of these short-life tenancies that were brought in under Thatcher. A landlord, whenever she or, see, she or he sees a rent gap, can close it pretty much at any point by just giving the tenants a new tenancy and saying, this is the new rent. Mm. Uh, you can either pay it or you can leave. This is sort of the model that's being propagated by banks like like Lloyd's. The 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 idea that they would buy a lo- big chunk of housing, essentially kick out the the undesirables of the people who don't pay enough rent, do them up, and then essentially seek to have the people who could pay the possible the highest possible premium uh, move in and then sort of gentrify the area, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, over and over again. I think that's that's definitely a part of it. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there are there are there are pockets where where rents skyrocket all of a sudden, and that's that's great for owners. The the other aspect is that housing is just genuinely extremely profitable, and you're right to say there's all this money sloshing around and it's got to go somewhere. But I think the reason why it comes to housing and housing in the UK in particular, and housing in Southeast England in particular, is because their expectation of high yields is just incredibly well founded. We've had a system of law and regulation really since the 80s and 90s where the state will pretty much guarantee that value will not only um, be maintained but will go up. Uh, so we get some sort of staggering um, figures. So in the 10 years between the global financial crisis and the start of the pandemic, the value of housing in the UK went up by £750 million per day. So every it's day we day. wake up per day. So that's for context, that's about twice the personal wealth of the monarch appearing in in additional value per day. Uh, so by the by the start of the pandemic, the value of housing in the UK had hit something like seven and a half trillion pounds, which Jeez. is which is four times the value of the FTSE 100. It's about twice the ba- the um, the balance sheet of the European Central Bank. So you know it's just so relentlessly gone up in value that regardless of whether you're closing rent gaps and, and jacking up rents and, and and things like that. Your, your value is pretty secure as an investor. Very important to say that this is not a bubble, though. Definitely not a bubble. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I genuinely think there's an extent to which it's not because, I mean, the point of a bubble is that it's misfounded expectation. But in the UK, rents do genuinely go up. Mm. You know, they, 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 they're underwritten by the state. 
by way of um, a, a fairly measly system of housing benefit. And, and investors do genuinely have a really well-founded expectation that rents go up year on year. I mean, there will be some point now which it will become a bubble, but uh, it, it seems that it's ticking away nicely for the time being. Yeah. And I mean, and this is also capturing this system of, of being a renter is just capturing more and more people. I was reading up on it a little bit that like generation rent, which is, I think, the under 35s now, which is like 48% of everybody under 35 is living in rented accommodation. And the chances of them like escaping the rent trap and buying a home obviously get smaller and smaller because the prices of buying an actual house keep getting higher and higher. And if you're paying higher rents, you can't save up for a deposit on a house. So it's a self-sustaining trap, essentially. Well, that's it. And I think this is the most important thing we learn from this Lloyds Bank and, and BlackRock stuff is that they they think you're exactly right about that. Because the government's sort of policy for getting ourselves out of the housing crisis is to back first-time buyers and back the expansion of home ownership, home ownership through ridiculously generous but still unaffordable mortgage assistance on new build um, flats and houses. And the government thinks this is how we're going to solve it by gradually increasing home ownership. Um, Lloyd says, bollocks, there's going to be loads of renters. They're going to, they're going to be quite high end renters because we're going to build these nice houses. So it seems that, that capital doesn't trust that the government's plan is going to work. But this I always find such an interesting question because like it, it assumes, I don't know if this is statistically true or not, but this is just a sense that I get that like there will be or there is a sort of steadily increasing supply of, young people with good high paying jobs who will be able to afford these rents whereas if i look from my home country in in amsterdam for example where similar things are happening in terms of rent prices at least it's very hard to see you know where the next generation of people who have these good jobs and have this high income to pay these high rents are going to come from because everybody's employment rights are getting stripped out as well mm. so is this i mean is there a finite end simply just because the supply of high end renters is going to run out well, I mean, this, this is the point at which it's got to become a bubble, right? This, this is only sustainable for as long as both the working class and the people who live in more expensive housing can pay their rent. And the, the thing that, that kind of fascinates me is that for a long time before um, the austerity program, the housing was fairly safe because the government paid most of, of, of lots of people's rent. As there have been steady cuts to housing benefit over the last 10, 12 years, housing costs are eating further and further into people's means their actual means and there will come a point now which it can go no further and that's when um that's when rents can no longer go up just as a matter of pure economics uh, that's when rents may have to start coming down uh, and that's when the well-founded expectation of the continued growth of, of housing value uh, might go pop let's turn to our, our friends at at lloyd bank and the Cit citra living brand which sounds very delightful mm. so this is their this is their scheme right to to pick up more properties yeah so or to essentially bring the blackstone model to the uk let's put it that way yeah it's it's not quite clear whether they want to buy them or build them i think that the the ft who reported it said acquire but they're basically going from owning zero rental housing to owning 10,000, which, yeah, I mean, it, as I say, it's about 1% of all rented housing in the UK at the moment. So a massive, very sudden um, encroachment. Uh, and I guess there have been some sort of experimental um, build-to-rent stuff. Um, there's, there's, some, there's some in London, a, a group called TP 
And then there's this this overtures by John Lewis to do the same thing. And it seems that Lloyds wants to do this, but on a much bigger scale. I think the, the, the biggest concern there as well with the fact that it's a bank doing this is that banks specifically are responsible for people being able to actually buy their own home in the first place as opposed to renting. So if they have that little niche in the market kind of cornered almost, mm. they can potentially not... Legally, I'm not saying they will do this, but they could potentially exert some sort of market control in that regard. If it's more going to make them more money to just have these properties bought, owned by them and rented out, as opposed to just loaning someone the money for a mortgage. Yeah. What's the incentive in them continuing to do that? No, that's it. I mean, the generous interpretation is is they win either way. If 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 mm. if, if home ownership increases, great, they get mortgage interest payments. If 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 um, renting increases, they get rent. Um, but the cynical, yeah, the cynical um, sort of standpoint is these are the gatekeepers of home ownership. It's up to them to decide how accessible home ownership is. And if mm-hmm. they've got an interest in keeping renters and high end renters um, trapped in rent, then you know that's that's a worry. So, and we would never be cynical in this podcast about landlordism, never ever. No, of course not. So I read the piece in, in the FT as well, and what they reported is that like the current largest corporate landlord is Granger, and they currently manage about just over 9,000 homes. And the idea of Lloyd's, at least what it was reported, is that they want to own 10,000 homes by 2025, 2025 and then 50,000 by the end of the decade, which would be yeah. an enormous entry into this market. Yeah, and and obviously we don't know how it's going to look, but it's possible that if it's if it's over a small geographic area, they will become a sort of major player with, with quite a big say over who gets housed and how in a particular locality. Yeah, and um, we can see that from current examples. Like you may have come across this guy Fergus Wilson, who owns an awful. He has a sort of buy to let empire in Kent. Oh, is he the guy who publicly says I don't want anybody on benefits living in my places because then I can't jack up the rent? Is he that guy? Yeah, not just that, but he's made appallingly racist comments. He's made appallingly sexist comments. He's had injunctions taken out against him. He's been taken to court by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. But, you know, he owns no small part of the, of, of the rental property in Kent. So there's a risk that if you're trying to rent down there, you might end up having someone like Fergus Wilson as your landlord and, 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 and have all that, all, the, all that that entails. So, I mean, we do have to worry a bit about if, if, if Lloyd's ends up owning 10,000 homes where they are and whether they're a significant mm-hmm. part of a local market. Yeah, that's it, because part of the problem is going to be the concentration of the housing as well, isn't it? Because, like, I mean, we talk about gentrification, like, it's harder, it's not harder, but it's, it's more difficult, I suppose, for a concerted effort to gentrify an area if it is a bunch of small bean landlords who aren't necessarily working together. But if it was just one entity controlling what is effectively, like, a small town or a section of a town, they could easily put a concerted effort into making all sorts happen in that area yeah and it's one entity with a fiduciary duty to its shareholders to maximize yeah. profit right if you've got the small bean landlords as you say yeah they can raise rents and yeah rents do go up but for some of them it's sometimes more trouble than it's worth for some of them they may be worried that a good tenant leaves for some of them they may not know exactly how much they can put the rent up by or how to put the rent up but when you have people whose whole job it is to maximize their rental income from a particular area then, I mean, that's going to be a much more efficient process. And I think you also might end up with what you see in these sort of lifeless developments, these high-end de- end developments in, in London, 
where, yeah, the houses are very expensive. And in London, you have the unique situation, I think, where that nobody actually lives in them uh, as well. But like these sort of lifeless big developments with a bunch of chain stores on the ground floor and a, at a plaza owned by the corporation with strict behavior rules that sort of <laughs> you get these immaculate but quite dead and community-free zones at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think the point of Lloyd's thing is is that someone's got to live in them, right? When when you have these glittering towers in in central London and other big cities, um, a lot of them are just there for for ownership purposes because you know the act of owning them produces a return, um, mm-hmm. whether or not they're lived in. When when it's Lloyd specifically looking to rent them out, I suspect they are likely to be lived in. Okay, and that's talking about living in them do you think there's a difference between like in terms of what the interaction between tenant and landlord is if you're interacting with i don't know citra living branded people coming to look after your boiler or landlord baz like it, it, is it better because corporates have maybe a bigger incentive to look after you properly well i have dealt with a lot of landlords in my time and i've got good and bad stories about both sides of the coin so Typically, in, in a sort of eviction type case, and you have a small start time landlord who hasn't really worked out what they've got themselves into, they can be quite difficult to deal with. It can be difficult to reach a sort of settlement where you pay the rent and allow to stay because they've got sort of emotionally invested um, or they don't know what they're doing or they've already put a lot of money into the litigation or whatever and they become stubborn. On the other hand, you can have a perfectly reasonable um, mortgage lender saying, yeah, we can work out a payment plan, no problem. So, you know, you would assume, you would assume that, that, that the evil faceless corporation is difficult to deal with. That's not always the case. And then in terms of the day to day, again, there are good and bad stories on both sides. And I think it's really important to note the, the ITV investigation into social housing squalor at the moment, because yeah, these, that, these, was, these are, that was very hard watching. Yeah. And these are not only professional landlords, but they're social landlords. And obviously they're facing terrible cuts and, and there's huge problems with staffing and morale, but these are people whose job it is to look after the properties of their social tenants and they absolutely don't do it. Whereas, you know, maybe, maybe Baz wants to make sure that there isn't rats in, in, in the asset that he owns. Um, I'm not saying this is always the case. I mean, there are absolutely appalling small scale landlords and I imagine mm. there are quite effective, um, high end and or corporate landlords, but I don't think we can have a sort of general rule about is it better to live in um, a flat owned by a corporation rather than a person. What about the other side of this? What about the actual disputes and resolution of those disputes? Would you consider it to be easier to deal with uh, a larger entity that's maybe got like proper codified rules that are available to tenants and stuff as opposed to just some guy that owns a house? Well, again, we can see this from the ITV investigation, right? That that um, it, it resulted in, in, I think it was Clarion, how, like a large housing association being reported to the um, social housing regulator and the social housing regulator saying there's absolutely no systemic problem here while we're all looking at our TVs watching <laughs> blocks covered in rats, right? So, yeah, there are regulations and even in the social sector, there are regulations, but that doesn't mean um, that they're observed and it doesn't mean they're monitored. Um, yeah, so it very really much just... comes back to you can't do that. That's illegal, and like, people <laughs> yeah, exactly. just shrugging their shoulders over it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it really does depend, and I think it's difficult to it's difficult to have a hard and fast rule about whether your your experience, if I can use a horrible word, as a tenant is better if your landlord is a company or a charity or or, or a guy called Baz. And do you find that 
more in a context of maybe not in like achieving results, but organising, do you find that a small landlord is less likely or more likely to be bothered by, say, something like a group like Acorn um, kind of organising against them than a, than a large one? Again, Acorn and other groups are really good at picking picking tactics that are appropriate to this struggle. I know that in Hassel we've had you know sort of disappearing landlords who run off with a deposit, and there's there's kind of not much that you can do against a small scale mm. guy who just disappears. Like he's probably got no money in his pocket, and it's difficult to go after him. Um, whereas if it's a large sort of uh, conscientious uh, housing provider or a local authority, they're not going to disappear, and you can just continue to be a nuisance until they pay up. Um, but on, on the other hand, it is a lot easier to sort of spook or scare a, a small landlord into doing what you want if all you need mm. is sort of three people and a banner and a dog outside their yeah. office or, or outside <laughs> the flat or whatever. Then you know they may they may sort of kick themselves into gear. What I found well, I found sort of an interesting question along these same lines is in let's say there is a change of government that is a bit more well disposed towards tenants or uh, you know towards poorer people in general. It, would it be easier for the state to sort of interact and intervene against Citra Living than it is against landlord Baz? Because then if there's a thousand individual Bazes, that's, I suppose, much more of a pain in the neck to deal with than if you can just use the power of the state against Lloyd's Living, Lloyd's branded Citra Living uh, entities if they've got 10,000. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at it from like the individual enforcement perspective, if you have a tenant who, say, has been illegally evicted by their landlord and wants to take them to court, then, yeah, it's a lot easier to go against Citra Living, who are a liquid company and are going to respect a court order, than against some guy who's probably mortgaged up to the hilt on, on, on both of his houses and is never going to pay you um, as, as long as you live. But if, if we're genuinely talking about the fantasy of a government that's pro-tenant, which we haven't had for, <laughs> which we haven't had since 1970-something, then the question kind of becomes obsolete because that government would need to do something to stop this process of constant rent rises and constant value increase, mm -hmm. which kind of gets rid of the problem, sort of nips it in the bud, um, basically uh, shrinks the private rented sector by making it a less profitable place. It'll be interesting up here, obviously, because we, we, we've just had some vague promises of like rent controls and, and things like that in the, the, the programme for government in Scotland. So we'll see how that all pans out and whether or not that might impact any any plans potentially for a large landlord development up here relative to in England. Um, exactly. But, and you've got, I think you've had these rent stabilisation zones for a while. And I think Scotland mm -hmm. got rid of Section 21 as well, didn't it? So like yeah, things, yeah. things are a bit, I think things are a bit more stable in Scotland and I think it will take a bit of time for the full impact of repealing Section 21 to be realised because, yeah, that's that's the biggest problem in England and Wales. I was reading your article and you wrote a line saying a large-scale landlord will see the housing crisis worsen and I had some thoughts on that but I wanted to get your, like, what you mean by that. Why would Lloyds coming in see a housing crisis worsen because their argument is i read a few of their press releases and stuff saying no no look we're just coming in we want to help build more homes what's the problem with that what i meant by that was it's in the interest of these guys to see the housing crisis worsen if you've got lloyds and john lewis wanting to build high-end uh flats and john lewis seemed to be suggesting that they would build a little waitrose and build the flats on top and it'd be furnished with john lewis furniture and it'll be very nice if if that's the type of tenant you have that sort of inherently means that it's going to be very, very difficult for people, even with higher incomes, to buy. So 
we're just constantly trapped in this in this rent situation that we were talking about earlier where people can't buy and that's because it's too expensive and that's because rents are high um and yeah everything's just continuing to get worse but i mean at, at some point apart from what we discussed earlier that you just run out of people who can afford to pay the rent at the risk of sort of asking a terrible question is, but like, where does everybody go who can't afford the shiny, true living John Lewis uh, furnished flats? But I mean, you know, where do they all end? Where, where does everybody end up in this model who can't live in the bright new future? I said, don't like it. There's the door. Well, that's it. Exactly. And the question is, where's the door? But well, in which locality is the door? Because I mean, people yep. will find somewhere to live. Uh, that is within their means. But what that generally means is you massively compromise on your on your accommodation. Either it's in the middle of nowhere, or it's a really like horrible, massive shared house somewhere you don't want to live, or it's not big enough, or, or whatever it is. Like people, like the rules of the economy are such that people will find somewhere to live, but it's going to be shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking looking forward to to getting back to tenement housing, essentially, sort of nineteenth century levels of people cramming themselves into flats. I mean, either that or you get or you get sort of the Paris model where it's just concentric rings of wealth pushing outwards and in the banlieue, in, in the outer rings where the service workers live, the cops just let everything burn to the ground once in a while. Yeah, and you've got to get up at five to get on a train which is which is packed to get to get to work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of compromise we're going to make. And then... The other thing about this this finance stuff is, is it seems to be going one step further in the US in that Blackstone and other finance companies seem to now be getting into the what, what's called affordable housing. Uh, I mean, affordable housing means lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, but it seems that there was a sort of um, uh, tax deal that American states passed about 15 years ago where affordable affordable housing, sort of socially minded landlords... Um, in affordable blocks, needed some capital. Um, the states passed tax credits, but they weren't eligible for the tax credits because they were tax exempt. So they got into bed with these um, Blackstone type companies, temporarily transferred the ownership of the of the housing to these companies so that the companies could get the tax credits. And the idea seems to be that after about 15 years, it would be transferred back to the to the social landlord who would have used the money to, to sort of invest in the property a bit. But these 15 years are coming to an end now and um, the companies are saying, actually, we're keeping them. And there's all sorts of litigation <laughs> about whether the idea was that the social landlords would take them back or the, or the, big, or the big capital companies would keep them. Um, it's pretty nasty. Well, something to look forward to, um, at least. And just, just to make sure, is this, like a, is this type of problem really London-centric or is what Lloyds is doing, what other places are do, other companies are starting to do? Can they do it in, in, is it easy replicable in Manchester or in Leeds or even in smaller communities? Like, does it, does the locale matter? I think the locale does matter in the sense of how the housing crisis looks. So, for example, in Manchester, they're really interested in sort of co-living arrangements and uh, sort of large-scale expensive student housing uh, and, and, and I think probably more build to let. And I think the reason for that is that the, the model that capitalists see in Manchester is short of short, sort of short-term rent extraction. Whereas the model that house builders and investors see in London is you build a very, very valuable asset. Um, you, you build a flat, not, not to manage, but to own. So it, it just looks slightly different where we are. Um, and I think obviously London's got a very, very like sharp and profound housing crisis, but that does seem to be 
spilling out a lot quicker elsewhere. And I think the calculation that sort of capital and policymakers are making is, well, if people can pay 60% of their income to rent in London, why can't we just demand 60% of people's income in Newcastle or Leeds? Uh, and, 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 you know, prices, prices are nudging up that way. Jesus. Well, that's, that's, that's... It's the same with pints, right? It's the same with pints. If you pay £6 for a pint in London, someone in Belfast goes, well, what happens if I charge £6 for a pint in Belfast? And eventually people will pay it. Yeah. If, uh, yeah. Eventually everybody will rise to that price level and then also you will have no choice but to pay it. That's the other side of the, the coin as yeah. well. If, if you want to live in Manchester, those are the rents. Yeah, because we've already seen, I think maybe, maybe I have this wrong, because we've already seen sort of in a microcosm, we've seen this sort of model of large scale building followed by increasing rent extraction in the student housing, housing accommodation where loads of universities have been encouraged to spend their capital not on staff and teaching, but on building student flat blocks and then yeah. extracting more rents from them. It's also also something that came over from the United States. I mean, wouldn't you do it? It's just loads of free money. Your captive audience, young yeah. people who don't really know what they're doing most of the time. Yeah, it's... It's, it's absolutely great. I mean, until Corona hits and nobody's yeah. in their accommodation anymore. <laughs> that's true. And that's the interesting thing about London, right? It's said to have lost 10% of its population. So all of these guys who claim that housing is all about supply and demand, like if they're right, housing should suddenly be an awful lot cheaper. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, instead of what we're seeing, this is happening to, to friends of mine as well who are looking to work in London or have jobs in London, and they are all looking in sort of a bounded hour outside by, by train to sort of like medium-sized communities, and there the prices are go exploding as well. It's constantly yeah. in the Telegraph and the Times as well, like the new top 10 villages for Londoners to ruin, essentially. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And I think the first thing to collapse was the centre. Prices seem to have gone down there where you had sort of ultra-high-end international-type people who could no longer travel, but they seem to be creeping back up. The prices outside London seem to be exploding. Um, and it's a bit of an open question about what happens elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, uh, one more thing, just as a side note, it's not really related to your, your article, but the eviction ban and it ended at the beginning of August. And I did some quick reading and it said that about a million people are now vulnerable to eviction or eviction procedures, at least. From, from your side, what does this look like now? Like, are you seeing a wave of evictions post the, the end of the ban? This is this is like a really difficult and interesting thing. It's not nearly as bad as we as, as lots of us thought it would be uh, yet. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think it's partly because um, a lot of people have had this really, really distressing year where they've been unable to leave their home. And it's a site of real like distress and trauma. And if the landlord says, please, can you leave? I suspect a lot of people are going to go, yes, absolutely. So we're not seeing people defending um eviction cases or we're certainly not seeing the scale of people defending eviction cases that we, that mm. we thought of partly because some you know a lot of people just don't know their rights and we'll just leave when asked to but i think partly because like it's been like the home has been such a site of trauma over the past over the past 18 months yeah, um, tainted, yeah. and i also think there is a real worry about what rents are doing and a lot of landlords might be thinking if i evict my tenant i'm not going to be able to relet at a higher rent or even at the same rent so I would rather keep things as they are. Um, that's not to say things won't at some point get very, very bad, possibly very, very quickly. But at the moment, things aren't nearly as bad as I thought they would be. Small blessings. Yeah. 
Well, that's, yeah, very small blessings. I mean, and at the risk of asking a very stupid question, what's the current government, what's the Boris Johnson government doing about any of this? <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? <laughs> Housing is the economy. As I say, four, four times bigger than, than the FTSE 100. So all they can do is make sure that that industry is stable and keeps going. Otherwise, Britain loses its national industry. Uh, so... That, that was like clear from, from their, from their policy making during the pandemic. They did the bare minimum in terms of protecting public health. But the first thing to open up when it was legal to leave the house again was like estate agents. And I think that's really telling of, of, of what, what they see their priorities are. Oh yeah. I remember people telling stories that like even estate agents would just like barge in with customers when they were still locked down inside their houses and it was just near impossible to get the, the estate agents to leave essentially. Right. I mean, you, you couldn't see your mum, but you could see an estate agent. And I, I, I had an estate agent come to visit for like the annual inspection or whatever. And I was really nervous at the time because, you know, it was, it was masks and no one, had, no one had sort of been in for ages. And the guy just was, he just wouldn't leave. He just seemed to be really lonely. I don't think he'd seen anyone in ages. And I was there like <laughs> stressed as he was touching all the light switches. And he was just oh. talking for like three quarters of an hour. Oh, name <laughs> Love to build a parasocial relationship with my estate agent. That's I know. This is, this is like one of the few people I've had human contact with for about three months with a fucking estate agent. Oh, crazy. <laughs> I mean, the other so, side of this as well is like, it's, it is all property because, like, one of the things that they were really pushing for when it was like the whole, well, you can go back to work now. It's fine to get on the tube. It was corporate landlords at that point that they were really wanting to prop up because they were losing so much money. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think that's one of the really interesting things about cities and what cities are going to look like because we, the, you know, these towers are going up. And if commercial property prices really do fall, you, you sort of wonder whether some of them are even going to be finished. The ones that mm. are finished are going to sort of look a bit ghostly, but some of them I do, I do worry about, about what stage they'll get to. Yeah, it's yeah. like big, um, big Spanish airport vibes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. As a, as, a, as a reminder of the good time, all these half-finished gleaming tower blocks meant for Saudis and Russian expats and people looking to, to store their wealth, essentially, uh, in property in London, where they're reasonably sure they can get it out again. Um, but as a, as, a, like, as, a, as a tenant or, I don't know, as a politically minded people, do we have any say in these developments like Citra Living and Lloyd Bank or... or like, is, are there any rights that we can exercise? Is there anything we can do to sort of, you know, if not halt the tide, because that'd be difficult, but at least sort of ameliorate things or, or show our displeasure? Yeah, I mean, like, the way that rent controls were won in, in, in the First World War was just by mass working class action. People mm -hmm. just refusing to entertain the notion that the, the, the law empowered people to be evicted. Uh, and, and the state was genuinely worried about what would happen in, on, on Clyde's side um, in, in 1914 and passed rent control to sort of keep the peace. Um, yeah. And we see similar stories throughout the world, throughout, throughout, throughout Ireland and elsewhere. Um, I think there's a, we've gotten really um, socially conditioned to understand and, and count out of the power of landlords. And I think what we need to do is have a better appreciation of our rights so that we can say like, no, I'm not leaving when you tell me to. No, I'm not paying a new rent just because you tell me to. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to stand firm. And just that sort of interruption to the process of, um, churning out higher rents week after week, month after month is, you know, is, is something. In your 
sort of in, in your career as you look at it, it if what happens generally speaking if a tenant takes a landlord to court or says no i'm not leaving is it generally like are the outcomes on balance positive in the sense that the laws is still relatively speaking on your side or is it just are the outcomes actually no that you might as well have left on day one for the individual tenant the law is absolutely not on your side uh, the Thatcher government passed this, this this law that basically said to a landlord yeah I promise you you can get your property back it will re- be relatively pain-free so if you're an individual tenant saying I'm not going to leave then eventually at some point the bailiffs will turn up and evict you assuming the landlord's done everything right if like an awful lot of tenants say we're not going to leave until you go through the full court process then landlords are looking at a much more profound problem because the whole promise that the Thatcher government made was that it will be quick and easy uh, and if there's an enormous mass and an enormous backlog of cases and landlords realize that it's going to be a, a costly and slow process to get someone out um, then the tide starts to change a bit. I think that's quite a healthy thing in general because I think we grant landlords too much social power even even given the massive legal powers that they do have. Um, mm. I mean how, how many of us would be confident to say I'm not paying this new rent. You haven't done the correct legal procedure to increase the rent. I I don't think many of us would. Um, So I think it's a healthy exercise anyway. But yeah, I I worry that you're right, that like it might be for nothing in most individual tenants' cases. Yeah, that's it. And individual tenants there is the the key because, I mean, like you say, it's much easier to have a a unified and wider pushback. And that's why things like ACON or renters' unions are becoming increasingly important and being able to solidify your uh, rights and continued living. Yeah. yeah. Plus, I, I always wonder, especially if, you're, if your landlord is doing like multiple buy-to-lets stocked, stacked on top of each other or they're corporate, like in my experience, in different countries at least, is it doesn't take much for certainly for landlord Baz to get on the water himself because he absolutely relies on your rent to pay the mortgage. And once if three or four of you say from the same landlord, no, we're not paying, then their ability to pay the mortgage becomes severely compromised. At least this is what I've seen and what we've also seen uh, during the, the corona crisis with regards to Airbnb. People who had Airbnb <laughs> empires, a lot of them imploded because if they relied on the monthly income simply to pay the mortgages on the different apartments they held. I th- yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's probably true in, in many cases. I think landlords would like to have us believe that that's a much bigger problem than it is because the rent on a property is bound to be significantly more than the mm. mortgage repayments on a property in in the vast number of cases so if if you're genuinely um just tidying yourself over as a landlord you're probably a shit landlord or you're probably <laughs> you know you've probably got other problems to deal with like yes it does happen but i think most landlords will be okay for a bit yeah, there's the, the difference would be big enough that the margins would be big enough to, to really make a difference. Yeah. And also, you know, like a house that come with a big thing saying the value of your asset may go down. Yeah. Yes. Like just because it hasn't for 30 years doesn't mean that it won't and it shouldn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, that seems to be something that an entire generation of people has thoroughly forgotten that houses yeah. are actually not ever upward spiraling things. Yeah. Uh, sort of to, to move towards the end... What would a socialist alternative to all this look like? How do we, you know, if we gave you broad authority to reform the UK housing market and and help a lot of tenants, what, you know, what would it look like? What should we be agitating for and, you know, demanding of our politicians to demand themselves? Sure. Give give us your five-year plan, Nick. Uh, My five-year plan. So (laughs) so Engels, 
to, to, to cite high authority. Engels makes the point that um, there's kind of always a housing crisis under capitalism. And the reason that our housing crisis and the housing crisis that he was writing about get so discussed is because it becomes such a big housing crisis that it's spilled over into the middle class. And I think that's true of what we're going through now. Mm -hmm. He makes the point that, well, either the market does it or the state does it, and neither is very satisfactory. I think that that's, that's got a certain element of truth, but that doesn't mean we can't make things an awful lot better. And the reason why the housing crisis now is so bad is because for a long time we had a situation in which the, the cost of accommodation was dominated by the state. You had a state that in certain local authority areas had just sort of built the landlords out by providing ample, good quality social housing. Um, rents were low because, I mean, landlords just didn't really have that captive audience that they have now. And in addition to that, you had rent controls, which is a pretty radical intervention into capitalism. If you, if you kind of have a law that dictates how much profit you can make from a commodity or from an asset, that's pretty significant. Um, and through that kind of twin mechanism of, of uh, a law state or a law um, limiting revenue and outcompeting through social housing, housing was a lot less shit um, before, before the Thatcher era. And I think yeah. that that's sort of what we've got to get back to is, is re-establishing council housing and, and, and limiting how much money landowners can make. Uh, that, that for sure will be an uphill struggle given that the landlords hold the balance of power and hold the majority of the money. But I mean, it's, it always comes back to the same thing, which is they've, they've got power, but we've got people. I think that's, you know, very fundamental also in, in the struggle mm -hmm. regarding um, landlord, landlords and, and tenants' rights. And certainly this corporate takeover or this impending corporate takeover of the, the UK housing market. I think we can all hope that that's not something that will actually come to pass in the way that it has in the United States. But knowing the UK housing market, let's assume that it does for now, unfortunately. Well, the interesting yeah. thing is, it's not just the landlords that have the power, because I mean, th those figures I read out, read out earlier about the value of, of the housing market, that's not just rental housing, that's all housing. Um, yeah. So there's the there's the petty bourgeois and there's the middle class who own their houses and the government absolutely does not want anything to interfere with the with the wealth that its voting population holds so that i mean yeah. that's why they're in a position of power but at the same time we've got the engels point about at, at a certain point it becomes so bad that the children of the people who own the houses start to get worried about it and something really does start to need to happen well i think me maybe closer to that point than many of those people at least um, expect. Is there any sort of final points you want to make before we move towards uh, the end? Um, just one thing. I, I was talking earlier about this this um, big capital buyout in uh, in the US of of affordable housing in New York, and the paper ran a big piece about it, saying you know these these capital things were swindling were swindling people living in affordable buildings in New York. And the quote runs, uh, the article ends with a quote from, from the lawyer of, of, of the big capital firms. And it says, quote, I feel horrible, said one attorney who has represented investors on scores of deals that were paid for by the low income housing program. Like these guys are such bastards that their own lawyer went in the paper and said they were bastards. Uh, and these are the guys <laughs> who are about to take over all of our housing. Fantastic. You love to see it. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, if, and if people want to, read more Nick Bano or listen to more Nick Bano or get more Nick Bano and housing related content where can they do such things yeah if you enjoyed me whining incessantly about how bad things are you can follow me on Twitter at Nick Bano I write sometimes for Tribune and uh, places like that um, 
but I would absolutely understand if you didn't want to do that because it's really depressing. <laughs> Uh, it's fine. The listeners of this podcast tune in every week at least once for a dose of depressing. So that's for, for that's a feel a good hour of content. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Nick. Thanks very much for coming on, mate. That's been great. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for having me. No, of course. And for the listeners, um, like I say, we're on holiday. But um, if you have anything you'd like to hear, any suggestions, anything like that, you can at as the usual and um, join the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash praxiscast, that way you get to annoy us on Discord as well as Twitter. That's true. Alright, catch you later folks. Bye bye. Bye.